genre. Please, please, huh? a moment to reflect. Ah. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of TMNT Minute Presents Back Issues, the podcast where we are talking about comic books in the Ninja Turtle universe. I am Scott Tofty. Here is our co-host, Adam Sheehan. Hi, Adam. Hello. Adam, I forget that you usually do these introductions. Yeah, but you're better at it. No, so. I guess we'll keep it then. And you've already got, you've already, you've got, you're spinning the plates. You've got everything up in the air. I'm multitasking. Well. Yeah. Um, so, very special episode with us today. Uh, very special episode for us today. Comma. With us, we have some excellent special guests. You guys out there in listener land may have been aware of this project called Drawing Blood that Kevin Eastman has put out, uh, and it's been paired with this other book, The Radically Rearranged Ronin Ragdolls. Well, we got two of the people with us today that uh, helped work on those books. Mr. David Avaloni. Hi, David. Hello. And Mr. Taylor Esposito. Hello, Taylor. Hey, how are you? We're very good. How are you gentlemen this evening? We're, I'm good. How about you, Taylor? You know, calling it a night for once early. <laughs> All right. Uh, we were almost, almost going to have uh, artist Ben Bishop on the show, but he apparently is driving and I, I, uh, an advocate for safe podcasting. So he said, you know what? Why don't you sit this one out and uh, not, not kill yourself in a car accident, which I, I'm hoping he appreciates. Yeah, we definitely don't want Ben to get hurt. No, no, no. We like his work too much, and I want to see more of these books. <laughs> um, so being that we are a Ninja Turtle-centric podcast, I feel like we have to get this out of the way early. Gentlemen, are either of you now, or have you ever been, Ninja Turtle fans? David, let's go to you first. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the Ninja Turtle fan, when there's a when something's been around for 30 years... <laughs> that that's that's more than one thing. I was a fan <laughs> of the Eastman Laird comics. I I remember reading the very first one when I was in college because that's when it came out, and uh, I liked it. And with my usual brilliant assessment of pop culture, I said, "Yeah, no one will like this. This is a <laughs> this I mean, is a really specific this is a really specific satire of like Frank Miller and manga and." The New Mutants and Chris Claremont and I mean, who's gonna who's gonna care about that? But of course, I miss the whole adorable funny animals fighting crime part, <laughs> which which is super popular. But yeah, I was a fan of that. I'm a fan of the first uh, New Line Cinema movie. Uh, I'm just a minute too old for the cartoon. I think. I think that's you fair. know what I mean. It, it's a it's a kid show that comes out when I'm 25. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. not awake that early on a Saturday. Yeah, I'm hungover <laughs> when it's on, and uh, I don't know that I would have appreciated it. So uh, definitely a fan of all that. And, of course, uh, in preparation for the Ragdolls, I went back and reread the first 30 or 4 not even 30. The first two volumes of the collected uh, Eastman Laird Turtles. Excellent. And it was it was very illuminating. There was a lot of it, a lot about it that I had kind of forgotten. It's really clear that they have no editor. <laughs> and and, and I, I mean that in the best possible way, in the sense that they're in outer space by like issue three or four. Correct. And any 
any infrastructure, any editor, any adult would have said, guys, could they fight crime in New York for like a year before we do before we do Star Wars? Like, it's just it Star have, Wars. Yeah. Does it have to go balls out crazy immediately? And, you know, Eastman's answer is, of course, yeah, yeah, it does. Well, so, uh, it's just funny you know. because it starts off so grounded, like Frank Miller, Chris Claremont, like you said, like it's this really gritty take on this ridiculous concept. And you almost like, oh, well, the brilliance of it is that it's so grounded. And then by issue three, they're like, no, we have a giant cow head floating in outer space. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it goes it goes crazy immediately. So I'm definitely I'm a fan of that. I like some of the I've seen some of the recent Nickelodeon stuff and really liked it. I've I've read some of the recent um, Tom Waltz um, IDW books and like them, too. Excellent. And uh, uh, Taylor, how about you? Does, are Ninja Turtles a factor in your life in any way, shape, or form? Well, before I get into that, it was a comic book first. <laughs> <laughs> Am I sensing exactly. an age gap? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> I, I mean, I was the pro- I was just the right age for um, what do you call it for the cartoon? I I was born eighty four, so like, what was eighty nine? Oh. The show was out. You're a year older so than like, I am. Oh. That's okay. <laughs> so you know like i had um i had an older uncle who read the books and like i just kind of got into it that way um but then with the tur- uh, with the cartoon and the toys it was all like look at this crazy stuff it's so cool and out there or whatever and then by the time the movie came out you know like i saw like what the book was like, was like oh i like this better <laughs> yeah now did you stick with the comic books as you were growing up? Because being around the same age as you, I know that I went through this like intense childhood Ninja Turtle thing, and then it disappeared for a long time, and then it kind oh, of so, came back in my twenties. Same, same. I, I have. I'm actually trying to catch up. I've missed so much, but yeah, that for me it was so much the cartoons and the movies that, like, I kind of skipped the books for a long time, and just now I'm starting to like. Oh. All right, got to go catch up and miss uh, figure out what I missed. So so this name Kevin Eastman had been floating around in your collective brains pretty much both of your your lives for a long time before you got this opportunity to work on drawing blood, correct? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so I guess the the first question is you guys had been in the the comic industry for a while. Taylor, what were you working on before you got this? Uh what was I working on? <laughs> I've been <laughs> yeah. working for like 10 years now, so you know, I've I've worked at both Marvel and DC on staff. I've worked freelance for almost everybody, so I've done a little bit of everything at this point. Okay, and, and David, you were doing what? Well, for uh, for since eighty seven, eighty six, eighty seven, I was in the film industry and still sort of am uh, doing a little bit of everything. Uh, mostly, I'd say like fifty percent film editing. And in uh, 2014, I started writing comic books. Oh, wow. Okay. For, yeah, for Dynamite. Uh, and I had done... Uh, I Actually, I think I managed to do a couple of series without Taylor Esposito, which is amazing. Uh, and then <laughs> since at least the second or third series I worked on, it's been pretty much full-time Taylor. And uh, we, got, we got paired up on... Twilight Zone Shadow. So I think that was right. Okay. So that was my second 
series. Yeah. <laughs> and that's <laughs> so you've pretty much worked on you've lettered ninety percent of everything I've ever written. Um, Does he ever which, change uh, anything you write at this point? Is he just like, oh, I think he meant to say this? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, I actually have the opposite problem. Taylor has such faith in my cop. <laughs> copy editing and typos that if I put one in, he's like, oh, he must have meant that. Well, I mean, that, that's just a general rule of thumb with me. Like, if yeah. something's in there, there must be a reason for it. He's, he, he spelled that he spelled that wrong on purpose. So, uh, but, that, but again, he's right. That's, I do often use, you know, dialogue effects that are sometimes phonetic rather than proper spelling. So, so the first thing I have good, to... I, it's a good idea. In in that vein, before we go further, I'm gonna I'm gonna nitpick one thing from the Ragdolls book. Uh, uh, it sounds like you have one there with you now. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, that is that was a tomo, I think. All right how yeah. how do you spell kitty? As in kitty cat. I don't know. Well, <laughs> there are, there there are a variety of spellings. I can't even remember how it's spelled in the book. I was say I've always spelled it with the Y. I think you spelled it with an I E, and I don't know that I'd ever seen it like oh, that. Oh yeah. So I was yeah, like, that's. I, ex- I took it as a stylistic choice. Yeah, it's a it's a little more uh, what's the word whimsical as yeah. a spelling. Fantastical. Um, so, Taylor, how do yeah. we get the 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 offer to work on this book, this series with Kevin, this idea? What is the the genesis of this? Well, David comes up to me and he's like, uh, "I'm working on a book with Kevin Eastman." I'm like, "Yes." <laughs> so for you it was for you it was real simple. Oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. And they what yeah, what was I, the pitch like when David came to you? What was what was that pitch? I mean it was just like so we're telling this story, it's kind of kind of true, kind of stylized. I'm like, yeah, I'm in. I don't need anything else. <laughs> now, you get to write in haiku, which is exciting. The, the haiku <laughs> was a choice I may someday come to regret. I regretted it a few t- a few times during the process. But uh, yeah, when we were putting the crew together, um, well, did Kevin did, asked, so? Did Kevin, Kevin approach Kevin, you directly? Kevin and I met in 2015 at uh, Emerald City. Uh, in a lobby bar at a convention, which is where everything happens. Nice. Uh, and uh, we became friends, and we started, um, you know, we started hanging out, and I would see him when I would go down to IDW because I was doing some, actually some video work for them at the time, hmm. shooting behind-the-scenes footage of uh, Winona Earp, believe it or not. Oh. And... Um, but I was also writing comics and San Diego 2015. He said, I want to talk to you about this thing that I've been kicking around for a decade. Uh, and it really was a decade. He did start working on it in 20, 2005. Wow. Uh, I've seen the notes from them and I actually, I read it and I have said to him and he knows this, um, it's probably a good thing you didn't do it in 2005 because you were way too angry in 2005. <laughs> and and now there's a little more of the wisdom uh, that comes from time and taking a deep breath and all that. And um, he said he had a terrible title for it, which was On the Shoulders of Giants. And he told me it was this sort of semi-autobiographical thing. And I thought it was an amazing idea. And... Uh, 
you know, I said, oh, so it's sort of like all that jazz, but about comic books, which is a fun idea. Um, and I, he had to go to, we were drink, we were day drinking like you do in San Diego. Sure. And he had to go to a signing and I, we walked along the back of, uh, the, the San Diego convention center was a really beautiful view of the Harbor. And I thought, you know, I'd like to come up with a title for this thing before we get to his signing. And as we came in the back door at the, at the convention, I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, drawing blood. And he went, oh yeah, that's it. that's a a thing so it was originally uh i don't know if you picked this up anywhere but it was originally a movie idea oh and and then it became a tv script and then it became a or a tv series idea and i wrote a pilot and we shopped it around a little bit and we sort of weren't crazy about the 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 response we were getting um and, you know, it's a pretty common thing now, I think, that screenwriters create comic books as a selling tool. Yeah. You know, like if they, to, to make something seem more like it's a real IP. And because of having gone through this process, a lot of screenwriters ask me about that as an idea. And I always say the difference is that Kevin and I are comic book guys and we love comic books and we're really happy to be making a comic book. As opposed said, to a means to something else. Yeah. I said, spending a year of your life and pouring a bunch of time, money, and sweat and blood into a thing that you think of as essentially a sales brochure, man, kill yourself before you do that. <laughs> don't like don't don't do that to yourself. But but in a way, if it if it had been a movie or if it had been a TV show and it had gone in those directions, we wouldn't have this great book. So it, it's it's almost like, you know, when a door shuts a window opens. Well, in that kind of sense. Not only or that, it's like, it's but like we do make comic books. We can just make a comic book. What would what would Taylor's yeah. role on the TV show be? Oh, uh, the guy watching the show opening. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen, I I I appreciate the lettering in the book. We had we had a, a lot of fun. You know, I just read through it again for like the third time, Drawing Blood and the Ragdolls book. And I have to say, I'm very impressed by the lettering. I like the layout. I love the text layout. I love the, it almost looks like uh, Ragdolls is hand lettered. Well, that is actually hand lettered by, by the artist. Oh, so that's not you. No, that's not me. I, well, I, in that case, I hate it and it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did the main story and all of Kevin's flashbacks. Oh, the flashback oh, okay. sequence is great. Um, yeah, and you really do a great job with the Kevin style yeah, on those pages. I, I actually thought that that was Kevin's lettering, too. Oh, no, I researched his, his old lettering, and I tried to recreate it as best I could. Oh, yeah, well, you nailed it. <laughs> like it. It's it's very good. The, all the books are put together really well. I really like, especially in Drawing Blood, the way it's written, it's, it's such a different voice than we typically hear from from Kevin in his books. He, I know he kind of did some of the noirish stuff with the turtles, but this is like the way if you just read it as a script, it reads as straight noir, which I really like. And it's funny, and it's cutting. It's all the things that like a good sort of grown up comic book should be. Well, thank you. I I was sort of raised noir. Uh, my father wrote private eye novels in the fifties. Actually, oh, wow. he wrote them. He wrote them from the fifties through to the nineteen eighties, uh, before he passed away in the late nineties. And uh, the character was name was Ed Noon. If you want to see samples of his writing, uh, I actually operate three Twitter accounts right now. Mine, <laughs> uh, 
one called Ed Noon P.I., E-D-N-O-O-N-P-I. And that's literally just quotes from his books. Nice. Um, <laughs> and also, I will admit, uh, in front of witnesses, the Shane Bookman Twitter account is me. <gasps> that's you. I was going to ask that who is, that was. That is me. Well, I write Shane's dialogue, so it does seem, <laughs> seems appropriate to, to keep it in that, uh, in that world. But yeah, we thought... A lot of people, we, for a lot of reasons, we framed the Kickstarter and the comic as though Shane was a real person and the Ragdolls phenomenon was a real 90s thing. Uh, one of the main reasons is we wanted to have it be in a world where Kevin was also a character because that I think that helps people from being distracted by believing it's 100% true autobiography kevin always likes to say shane gets in a gunfight in the first five pages and i can absolutely promise you i've never been in a gunfight yeah well i'll tell you sitting down and reading this book and knowing that it is partially you know autobiographical from kevin's point of view or biographical i suppose i'm like part of me is a little scared from my childhood like okay was he and then you said he was angry i'm like was he really this angry in his life at a point that uh that he's like, I'm going to cut off my drawing hand before I ever did a damn thing. Like, is how how much of the vitriol, the, like... The drawing hand thing, uh, which, of course, the character that does that in the story is Frank Forrest, not, uh, not Shane. Right. But where that... That's one of the primary inspirations for this story. Kevin read an interview with the legendary Wally Wood. Um... In which Wally Wood said, was was asked, uh, you know, some very puffy question of like, you know, Mr. Wood, you're such an iconic, legendary comic book creator. Uh, how does it feel, you know, to be this legend, this titan? And he said, if I had known what was coming, I would have cut off my drawing hand when I was oh, a teenager. Man. And Kevin read that and went, how the how do you get there? Like, what happened to you that made you like that? So having a character that was that broken and that burned out by comics was always very important to us. And Frank Forrest, I mean, the, 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 the connection between Frank Forrest and Wally Wood is pretty obvious with <laughs> Forrest and Wood and all of that. Yeah. And he's drawn... And he's drawn to look like Jim Stranko, and of course he doesn't really have all that much to, in common with Jim Stranko. <laughs> and he's and he's Shane's partner in a publishing venture, like Dennis Kitchen was <laughs> Kevin's partner in a pub. But he's none of those people. Right. You know, he's Frank Forrest. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he shares microscope. You know, uh, I can confidently tell you that Dennis Kitchen does not owe any money to Lithuanian mobsters. I, I 100, I 100, he's not suicidal. He's not a bad guy. Uh, it just was a good way to combine, you know, a Jack Kirby type character with Wally. And Wally Wood did commit suicide, by the way. Like, that's not, you know, so as dark as the story goes, it's, you know, a darkness that's reflected in the real world. Right. Um, and a lot, you know, ask a lot of, especially guys from that generation, it, they were underpaid, they were undervalued, they had no creator rights, and they burned out. Um, and some of them burned out, but, you know, Jack Kirby was still drawn when he died. That's you know? very it's, true. 
it's uh it's an addiction and and uh and people can't step away from so the characters in drawing blood like literally no one is just a one-for-one representation of that person in the real world you well, know? that makes me it's feel like a, a little bit better. Suit almost, but like yeah. comic book guys. Yeah. I mean, another, not to go on too much on this subject, uh, another perfect example is uh, I made uh, his partner, his brother, instead of, I thought it was a more emotional connection if it wasn't just, you know, his buddy, his roommate. And I will say that uh, I have never met Peter Laird and I have a bad relationship with my sister. <laughs> so... That character is my sister, 98%, and Peter Laird, 2%. As a character. Also, you know what I mean? Also helpful to know. Now, keep in mind, I don't think in the first book that we meet uh, Paul Bookman mm. at all. I think we just – I think Shane is the introduction, and we haven't even heard anything about Paul yet. Right. Paul, Paul, is, Paul is coming in uh, – I, I think we see him for the first time in issue two. Two or three, um, I forget exactly. Yeah, I forget. Remember, we did this as a Kickstarter, so in our minds, <laughs> four, four issues of it are done, right. out, and we have barely looked at them in a year. I just don't <laughs> want you to accidentally spoil anything, that's oh, all. Oh, no. I don't, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that <laughs> eventually, eventually you're going to see uh, Shane's partner and brother, Paul, uh, in flashbacks and in, uh, and in present day stuff. Oh, but, good. Uh, yeah. So, Taylor, a question for you. So, this this project gets started. It's rolling. How often do you get to work in the room with uh, these guys? Do you get to sit down and have meetings with with Kevin and and David and Ben, or is this strictly something you guys are doing like over Wi-Fi? Or uh, everything's remote. I, I'm in America's armpit, New Jersey. So, oh, you're like right across the river. <laughs> <laughs> you're somewhere between me and Scott. I think. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. No, I I work out of out of my uh, studio in Jersey. So most of the time, it's just talking on the phone or, or Skype or email or something. Uh, I see people like once a year. It's like, oh, we're all in New York this year. Great, let's all hang out for ten minutes. There you <laughs> go. Let's all day drink. <laughs> That's yeah, the way to do it. Taylor and I have been in each other's company for maybe 10 minutes, and it was at New York uh, City Comic Con. Now, is this in your entire, what did you say, 10 years of working together now? Five. Oh, five. And, and five years, we've been in the same room maybe 10 minutes. Oh, that's sad. Because um, I'm, in, I'm in Los Angeles. Um, Kevin is in San Diego. So we see each other. I'm having breakfast with him tomorrow. We see each other a bit. Tell them those uh, even, minute guys say even, hello. <laughs> I will do that. I'll tell them we did this. And uh, but even us, you know, like we talk on the phone for long periods of time because we have a lot, you know, we have a lot of stuff going on. Um, and uh, Ben, I've seen at a couple of cons. Ben has come out to San Diego twice. Um, but yeah, that's honestly, guys, that is the nature of comic books in the 21st century. Wow. There is no bullpen anywhere. There's the first, I will never forget the first comic I did for dynamite, really great artist named David Cabrera. And I looked him up on Facebook out of curiosity. And Mr. Cabrera lives on an Island off the coast of Morocco. Oh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, the artist I've done the most work with is a guy named Dave Acosta who lives in, uh, Michigan. I think Deerfield. Yeah. I think so. Not a hundred percent. Might be a small town outside Deerfield, but uh, 
you know, and Dave has drawn for 30 issues for me off the top of my head. Wow. And we've never met face to face. And I love the guy. I, you know, I consider him a very close friend because we talk a lot. Um, we mostly communicate, believe it or not, through uh, Facebook IMs. That sounds incredibly familiar. That's how Adam and I, the Turtle crew here, uh, mm-hmm. we've hung out maybe as a group once, twice. Yeah, we've only ever all been together in one place and one time once. And we were super drunk when we did it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's, a good that's, way, that's a good way to do it. There's a lot of podcast groups out there that, I mean, this is that's kind of the world of podcasting in the same light. Like a lot of us, like I, I've never personally met Scott Corelli, and he's responsible for just about everything I've ever done <laughs> podcast-wise, so... Yeah, so not all together unfamiliar. Um, if you don't mind, I want to dive into some of the details in the book here sure, yeah. a little bit more. So either one of you guys can jump in and answer. It's 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 fine with me. Um, I I really enjoyed. I'm looking at the Ragdolls book here, and I'm really enjoying just how much it is Ninja Turtles, but also how much it's not. Uh, so, like the things that I noticed that are very Ninja Turtles are the the family aspect, clearly the the Japanese and and ninja influence, uh, and the fact that they're very childlike and also they're anthropomorphized animals. But there's a lot in it that is also very different from the Ninja Turtles, and I was wondering if you guys could just sort of talk to the the things that are are unique to this particular set of characters that you were working on. Well. I think that some of that comes from the desire to not just be a pastiche to create something like we never felt the desire as an example, the family, it's an elderly Japanese couple. They are based on an elderly Japanese couple. I've been friendly with over the friend over the years who own a sushi restaurant in Los Angeles on sunset Boulevard. Um, <laughs> but I think, that's a good example of the approach in that as much as we wanted it to be like the Ninja Turtles in ways that were resonant for fans of the Ninja Turtles, we, we felt absolutely no need to be a slave to that in the sense that Mama Mashiko is their splinter, essentially. She and her husband, but then the husband is killed and it's mostly her. She didn't need to be an animal. <laughs> you know what I mean? She right. didn't need to be. She did, she's literally just a, a chef at a sushi restaurant. Um, well, let, let me ask you this then, with knowing that how, how much these people are based on people in real life. Are these three cats based on three actual living cats? <laughs> <laughs> that's, I'm sorry to get a, the impression. No, no, no. That's actually a, that's a weird, like, how the magic of things works. Long before I came along, it was going to be three reptiles, believe it or not. They were the radically rearranged Ronin reptiles. And sort of right before we pulled the trigger on starting the project, Kevin caught me up and called me up. He's like, eh, reptiles are green, man, and they're, it's, it's too close, and I don't like it, and they're not cute. No one thinks reptiles aren't particularly cute. <laughs> uh, so let's do something different. And uh, he suggested cats, and I would have suggested cats if he hadn't. Uh, I'm a cat owner. I have three cats. The magic of the process is their personalities are a little based on the personalities of my cats. I didn't come up with the visual of what they should look like. 
but I have a black cat and kind of a fluffy gray silver cat <laughs> and a and a tiger stripey tabby cat. So these that are, is these are, that uh, is essentially how the ragdolls ended up. <laughs> and when and when Kevin and Troy and to a smaller extent Ben when they were done tossing the ideas around and came up with the final with my input, but still I just, I didn't really push it that way. I didn't say one has to be black, one has to be gray and one has to be stripey. That's where those guys landed. And then I looked at, it, I said, these are my cats guys. Just for the <laughs> record, you have faithfully recreated my cats. And I do sometimes call my black cat a Tomo because that's the most one for one, uh, <laughs> Uh, my my black cat uh, Mackie is is cranky <laughs> and angry <laughs> and uh, has has kind of an attitude problem. So that got pretty much uh, transferred directly to Otomo. Um, Miyazaki's persona doesn't really come from anywhere, but my love of Miyazaki films uh, and the man the man himself and Tezuka is again just you know. I don't know if you picked up on the visually each one of them has an aspect of the most famous or not the most famous, but projects, the directors they're named after. Oh, I didn't catch um, that. Yeah. If you look at Otomo, Otomo is wearing the red leather jacket from Akira, ah. but in Akira, it's got a pill on the back and Otomo's has a piece of salmon nigiri. So, <laughs> Because she's a cat, not a pill pop, not a pill popping teenager. Tezuka is the creator of uh, Astro Boy, right? And I did see that in the book. One of them is like doodling Astro Boy. Yes, they're all in the origin sequence. You see a little bit of that, but Tezuka has the big red boots, like Astro Ah. Boy. And also, I think she's got Astro Boy's sort of cheerful leadership persona. And I consider Miyazaki very spiritual, the filmmaker. Uh, and my favorite Miyazaki film is uh, Nausicaa. And uh, Miyazaki the cat is wearing a, a little flight helmet like Nausicaa wears. Also referenced visually in the origin story, too. What yeah. Is, is reading yeah. Nausicaa, yeah. Yeah, Troy picked up, I, Troy heard me describe all of the things. I don't think I described those. I think I just said they're all doing little activities and I think Troy chose those three activities uh, for that. I should also say, as far as the art goes, this is a little bit of a, a, a an unrelated question, but I think it'd be interesting to uh, Ninja Turtles fans. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard the expression Marvel style. Yes. Yeah. This is the only comic book I've ever done Marvel style, and I didn't do the whole thing that way. But basically, when I started writing the fight scenes, knowing that Kevin was going to draw the layouts, I called him up and I said, Kevin, I feel a little stupid describing how to lay out a ninja fight scene to Kevin Eastman. (laughs) So if you don't mind, I'm just going to Stanley it up for a few pages. Uh, So if if you read the original scripts, every time there's a fight scene... It's literally just in the script. It says the kittens, the cats fight the dogs for three pages, and I will add <laughs> the quips later. 
<laughs> I will I will add quips and sound effects once Kevin has laid it out. And then I would see Kevin's layouts. I would write actual dialogue and sound effects, and then Troy would do the inking. And another reason you don't tell Kevin what to do is that the basic comic book artist doesn't want to draw more than four to six panels a page. That's sort of the standard. Right. Kevin, because he was his own boss and does whatever the hell he likes, <laughs> Ke- <laughs> Kevin Kevin will happily do a 15 to 20 panel page if he thinks, if he because he'll, he'll break down actions so that you see every snapshot of a hand on the hilt of a sword and the sword coming out of the coming out of the scabbard and the sword flashing through the air and the sword meeting the other, like another guy would do that in one panel. Right. But, but Kevin, and you see that also in uh, like Frank Miller, when he's writing and drawing his own stuff, you'll see yeah. 20 panels on a page easily. Cause he doesn't give a shit and he doesn't have to make anybody. He knows he can do it. He doesn't have to worry about someone, but I didn't want to get into the habit of writing <laughs> 20 a 20 panel page and then panel 19. Yeah. And then sending that to Dave Acosta and seeing his head catch fire. So I imagine Taylor, you must Uh, appreciate that also, right? You don't want to have to put letters into all those tiny little boxes. Well, that's the thing. Like this, I haven't given it a name yet, but there's this idea. The more panels you have, the less each, each panel should say, but most people don't get that. And most people like to make it, you know, it's Quentin Tarantino time. Everyone's getting a big diatribe. It's like, where is it gonna go? Can I give where? you? <laughs> can I give you a name? Ready? It's paragraph to panel proportionality. There you go. Oh, it's the three P's. You can use that. I'll give that to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. But yeah, no. I mean, th- there's this habit where people do this beautiful splash page, and the only word on the page is no, and it's 37 <laughs> panels, and everyone's got everything to say. It's like. No, it doesn't work that way. Switch it. Switch it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the 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 Batman Hush comics had a lot of those big splash pages with like the single word on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and it can be done to effect. It, it's, yeah, I'm not saying you can never do it, but it, you shouldn't waste an entire page with one balloon, and then you know try to cram everything else into like one page with 37 panels. So, so how is how did they do these guys with the artwork and the scripting? Uh, how did it, did they make your job easy? Were there problems that you had to solve as a letterer? I mean, there's always problems, like unforeseen ones. You know, like sometimes you think something's going to work, and then you realize after the fact it's not going to work, or dialogue changes as we go along because something just works better. Um, but for the most part, you know, Ben is really good about leaving space. Um, yeah. Uh, Dave has heard me complain multiple times about how most people do not leave the first speaker on the left. So you know, always <laughs> try to adjust things for me. So it, Drawing Blood is one of the few books where I don't have a problem with anything. All right. And I, I, and I, I, I try to be, uh, I try to be cognizant of that. Um, I, Taylor knows this, but I always do another dialogue pass between the inking and the lettering and most people should (laughs) yeah absolutely because and half the time it's it's better i mean this is not relating related to lettering sometimes the artist draws something and it's not at all it doesn't convey what you needed the panel to convey 
So that's got to come across another way. And sometimes, and this happens a lot with Dave Acosta, he adds an element where I go, oh, that's, that suggests another joke. That mm-hmm. suggests a change in the dialogue. You know, he, he expressed something visually, and now I don't need to say that out loud. I can let that be silent. So I always go through and, and also, and I do this a lot for Taylor when people aren't first speaker on the left. And I try to catch that at the layout Mm -hmm. level, but I don't always get it. I will sometimes figure out a way to let whoever's on the left speak first. Uh, I will rejigger things because I don't want to see long tails going across the whole page. So I'll figure, even if the first character has to just say something completely innocuous, um, I, I care a lot about how the panels lay visually. And Taylor will tell you, I'm a wordy-ass writer, but <laughs> but I do, I do look at the final book, and a lot of times I'm like, well, this panel has five lines in it, and it's a small panel, and the very next panel has two lines in it, and it's a huge panel. I think lines three and four can move down to the next panel if the emotion is the same. And I'll make that judgment call too. Like if I'm like, oh, yeah, this will oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Taylor does that plenty of times. If I don't catch them, uh, he'll adjust things. And it's, it's just, it's all part of the language of what we're, you know, what we're working in. And sometimes you just get a situation. Uh, Betty Page Unbound, number one, came out th- today. And I know I the first three pages are just <laughs> so much exposition because it was an info dump. It's an it's a new it's a new number one issue, right? But it it comes as a sequel to a five issue series and an eight issue series, and I didn't want the reader getting completely dead ass lost, so. <laughs> I had to shove a ton of exposition into three pages, and Taylor helped a lot with massaging that. Uh, and I, we got it. it. Oh yeah, I mean that's works, the thing too. We work right now. Yeah, like uh, it, I'll try to honor whatever's on the script at all times, by hook or by crook. I'll make it work. But it's, every once in a while, it's like, all right, this is just not working. I can't find a way. We have to cut this down. But like last resort type stuff, you know. So. For the most part, I'll try to make it work one way or the other. And and I can say an interesting thing about Drawing Blood. The first three issues were harder than the fourth issue on this particular concept we're talking about. Because issues, two and a, issues one and two and halfway through issue three are the pilot script of the TV show. Okay. And in a pilot script... The scene with the Lithuanians and Shane Bookman can be five pages long and it's hilarious and it's got a lot of great jokes and it's going to be four and a half minutes on screen on a comic book. I don't have five and a half. You can't do that for five pages. No. No. (laughs) Doesn't matter how funny it is. The whole thing's 22 pages. A funny scene that doesn't provide five pages worth of comic book density story doesn't work. So every single scene in the first two and a half issues is a painful act of surgery. Oh man. Where it's where it's the best five jokes out of fifty. Uh and the best five lines of dialogue out of fifty. And once I hit the end of 
uh, you know, page 10 in issue three, I just took a deep breath. I was like, now I'm writing a comic book. <laughs> now I'm not <laughs> painfully excising what I think is gold to meet an arbitrary page number. Uh, but it was a very good exercise. And honestly, uh, you know, we're still working on getting it made as a TV series and that's still up in the air, but it's, uh, I will absolutely rewrite the pirate pilot script based on things I learned changing it and boiling it down, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's fascinating because having never worked, I'm, I'm consider myself an artist. I love to draw. I used to think that maybe comics was a thing. I, to this day am pretty, uh, ignorant as to the process of all this stuff. So I find it fascinating the the little details and minutia of how all these things like first speaker on the left, it occurs to me I never actually thought of that before until just now you mentioned it. Now I'm like, oh, oh yeah. Yup, that's how every comic book is. I well, get it's it. Like yeah. I never noticed that Everything is left to right, top to bottom. Is that how you read? <laughs> well, that's how most people read. Oh man. Um so another thing I noticed uh that I wanted to talk about is who made the decision that the ragdolls were going to be female? Uh, that goes all the way back to 2005. The, the, the radically rearranged Ronin reptiles were three sexy ladies who were lizards. <laughs> they, got, they got less sexy when they became kitty cats, and we decided to make them sort of more realistically cats than realistically women yeah i just i really appreciated the the fact that like this big you know it's in this you know kayfabe world of shane and paul bookman that their big billion dollar creation from the 80s was a bunch of badass female ninja cats i just i really enjoyed that and i kind of like I, whether the statement is conscious or not i kind of like the statement that, that makes uh, i you know I, you'd have to ask kevin as to the original 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 impetus of that i think it may very well have originally been uh well the you know the turtles are boys so let's make them cats so let's make them girls you know it may be it may have been as simple as that but i think ultimately you have to be comfortable with all of the implications of it in order to do it you know what i mean there are a million guys that wouldn't have seen it that way oh sure um it just to me it was it everything in the ragdolls book is is women except for the damsel in distress at the end is the young boy so yeah. i just like that it, it yeah. seemed i interpreted it as this very conscious gender flip which i really appreciated i thought it was I, a really good thing to do i think it was i mean i think the original the reptiles version from kevin i don't think there was a there wasn't he hadn't developed it very far so there wasn't an april o'neill there right. wasn't a you there wasn't a human best friend. And when I thought about, well, who's the human best friend that's a flip on that? And they're in Queens, New York in the early 90s. It just seemed like an African-American kid was the most interesting choice to make. And, and you know, very intentionally making him a boy because the idea is this thing was a global phenomenon and everybody was in love with it. So I felt like there had to be a male character that little boys... Uh, role modeled for want of a better word and okay. could, could, could project them could project themselves into not that boys do not project themselves into the girl cats all the time. A, a grown men have, you know, messaged me <laughs> and said, 
and said, I'm totally a Tomo. I totally get where she's coming from. So, you know, I don't believe that that's a necessary thing, but I thought it, it created an interesting balance uh, with the characters to, to line them up. And again, and Splinter being male and Mashiko being an old, you know, an old Japanese yeah. woman, you know, all of those things are flipped semi-intentionally. Uh, but also, it was just the best way the story worked. As yeah. a as an as, as an aside, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Winona Earp. Uh, very uh, on the fringe. By, yeah, I haven't had a created, chance to read it created, yet. But. It was created by a guy named Bo Smith. He's a very good writer, wonderful guy. And he gets asked a lot, you know, when you're developing the comic book and it's the long lost, you know, 27th generation descendant of Wyatt Earp did you make it a woman as some kind of feminist statement? And, you know, not, you know, Bo is a perfectly feminist, you know, believer in equality, but his honest answer is you always ask yourself, what's the boring way to do it. And then you do it the other way. Fair, fair. And he said, and he said, what's the boring way to do a descendant of Wyatt Earp? Is it some handsome dude in a month's mustache? The crazy, interesting way is it's a chick with a bad attitude. Or a giant mutant cat. Or a giant mutant cat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, you know, but, but yeah, that's the, what's the more interesting, uh, what's the more interesting take on it? And, you know, this seemed like the more interesting take on it. I also think in terms of their origin and how they're like the turtles and not like the turtles, I think it helps that I'm not a lifelong having seen every incarnation of the turtle super fan <laughs> because I think I wasn't, I might've been more trapped in trying to make it like the turtles. You know what I mean? Yeah, I was familiar I can... enough, familiar enough to know what I was referencing, but not so familiar. I was like, well, man, it's got to, they got to have a, you know, maybe it's a, maybe instead of a rat, it's a raccoon. maybe maybe uh you know instead of a female reporter it's a male reporter you know like i didn't feel that trapped and that like oh and also obviously kevin made it easy for me by being completely open to all of the ideas uh yeah i think that that definitely probably would have not worked in your favor because lord knows as the the giant obsessive turtle fans that we are that we get into our own heads about it sometimes <laughs> even when we're talking about ninja turtles it gets a little ridiculous um yeah. adam do you have any questions i we're coming up on the end of our hour here uh, i don't want to hold you guys too long but i want to make sure adam gets a chance to get a couple questions off and and uh it, we'll wrap it up with you guys here so adam anything well i just uh i really like the idea of the book within the book and then the book within the book being its actual own entity like there's two books one exists inside the other one yeah um whose idea how did that come about that came about partially that was an art decision and partially it was a commercial decision i'll tell you the art side first the art side is when i was writing the first issue of drawing blood we had worked out like the names of the cats and we had worked out what they looked like. But the more we worked on drawing blood, the more I was like, without knowing the whole origin story, without writing these characters, it's super hard for me to write 
the hallucination version of the characters. So we should create this because we need it. We need to know what it is. It, we're, and there's also, I've always felt like when you do art about artists and you don't show that artist's art, you're cheating. Yeah. That's because right. you end up with a, both, a bunch of scenes and you've seen this in a hundred movies where someone says to the main character, you're so funny. You're so talented. You're such an amazing musician. And you as an audience member goes, what, I have to take her word for that? <laughs> like, why, why do I believe? Whereas, you know, to use all that jazz, which maybe is an old movie for you guys, but you see him be a brilliant choreographer in all that jazz. You don't right. need to be told over and over and over. He's a brilliant choreographer. There's a centerpiece in the movie where you see a dance number he choreographed and you go, well, hell, that is genius. <laughs> you know? So in order for us to keep saying there was this thing and it was really awesome and everybody loved it, it feels a little fake if you're not willing to bring the goods and say, here's what that thing was. We absolutely have the confidence that we can create something. And look, there, there was pressure to it. There was definitely, I basically was going to George Lucas and saying, make another star Wars that's original, but kind of refers to the original <laughs> star Wars, but is, it has to be absolutely as good as star Wars <laughs> or, it or, it, or, it, or it doesn't, or it doesn't work. If it just seems like a pastiche, it's, and I think the, I, you know, knock wood, I think we succeeded. I think if drawing blood didn't exist, the ragdolls would be a perfectly successful comic. I book. think it could, and I think it's funny too. You know, I wanted to mention that you're you're doing this thing of you're writing this character's voice, uh, Shane Bookman, right, in Drawing Blood, but then in Ragdolls, you're writing his voice, writing someone else's voice, and it's got to be kind of uh, messing you up in the head a little bit to go like, okay, I know how this guy thinks but how does he create how do you change your creative process to take on the personality of someone else's creative process and you're even missing one more element of complexity oh god now what <laughs> it it's it's shane and paul that's yeah, true drawing the way that artist would draw i think yeah that, that, that's kind of what started to bend my brain because i read uh drawing blood first and then i read ragdolls and it was like oh my god so this is a drawing of a person who drew this like yes <laughs> and th that's what really drew me to this series what also draws me to it is you you're kind of you've written two different books for two different audiences totally ragdolls can kind of live on its own because it doesn't reference yeah. drawing blood universe it doesn't have to and and this is kind of a book for everybody and drawing blood is kind of it might not be for everybody but oh it's definitely it's definitely r-rated we had an issue where uh Someone had uh, given us money in Kickstarter. We sold them, put me and my son on a page of Drawing Blood. And they saw the first issue of Drawing Blood and went, uh, my kid's a toddler and <laughs> I, can't, I can't show him Drawing Blood. And we talked about ways to make that good. And I was like, guys, just put him in. Just put them in ragdolls. I know exactly the shot you're talking about. Oh too. yeah, it's very. There, there, there's a man, uh, a man with a beard walking down the street with a little child, and that is a Kickstarter supporter. I, uh, I, but 
but to finish up the uh, the commercial version of why we did rag dolls, and I'm not ashamed of this at all. When we were doing the Kickstarter, I went, well, look, your audience, you being Kevin, is a bunch of people who are addicted to funny animals fighting crime, uh, anthropomorphism, comedy. Uh, it's pretty lighthearted stuff presently. And we're trying to get them to buy an R-rated midlife crisis comic book <laughs> that's, that, that's set in the real world and is about show business and comic books. That is not the most natural for thing for them to be drawn to or to love. So we made the Ragdolls comic was the free, uh, you got that as a bonus if we raised over $100,000. Oh, okay. The four issues of Drawing Blood were $75,000, and if we got past it, and I, you know, we figured, and I think we were right, that Kevin's fans would be particularly motivated <laughs> to, to see the ragdolls. And they're very, you know, they're very, uh, they were very excited by the ragdolls. So it worked out that way. But like I said, ultimately, I think we would have, we would have done it anyway. And I think it's another thing that's sort of a crucial difference worth looking at is the ragdolls are 91, 92. So they're, they come along like seven years after the turtles. Right. And, and so that comic is more specifically an early nineties comic than a mid eighties comic. That's why it's in color. Cause we knew the black like and white, that, yeah. the black and white boom and bust had come and gone by 92. Um, it's just, it's got a different feel. And also I'm from the East coast. I'm a Mets fan and having them be in Queens in 1992 allowed me to make an enormous number of Mets references, including a, including a finale at Shea Stadium. With, yeah, they, they're upset so. they can't see Duck Gooden pitch. Yeah, exactly. I, that was That's for the old-timers like me in the audience. That's I loved the Wham. Oops, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I loved the Wham poster in the bedroom and the Julie Newmar oh, yeah. Catwoman poster in the bedroom. Yeah, it? we did a whole <laughs> – Kevin did a whole layout of everything. I think I even suggested uh, – Michelle Pfeiffer, because it's a year or two after oh, Batman, right. or Batman Returns. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, you know, the Julie Newmar poster can be something they've had for ten years, you know, yeah. so or five years. I Julie think. Newmar's always uh, fantastic. Adam, go ahead. Oh yeah. Oh, but I was going to say, um, going back to selling this as a TV show, would you, would you, if you, if given the chance, try to sell this as two separate TV shows? Oh yeah, definitely. So then you would have like the Saturday morning cartoon and then yep. the, uh, the midnight yep. Saturday night. Ideally, ideally, that's the idea. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, and it, it's a one, all of this stuff is always a one in a million shot. And I, I, I stress that <laughs> before I talking about it. But, you know, ideally it would be someone like Netflix who would do it as an adult animation, 30 minute ragdoll show, and then an hour long you know, comedy drama re, uh, for drawing blood. That said, we've had interest from um, some children's television people, some animated people, just for the ragdolls. They don't care about drawing blood. Listen, all I'm saying no, is... They have no interest in drawing blood. That Kevin Eastman guy, I don't think he's going to make it in this industry. Clearly, he's <laughs> never had a good idea. I don't know yeah. why we should trust him with with this well, kind that, of thing. That's always the part that's funny to me. I mean, I know it's, you know, years have gone by and uh, it's been a while, but you just want to say it's like, 
look, the last time this guy had a really new idea, it turned into a billion-dollar global franchise. So maybe, you guys want to miss out on that? Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> maybe, maybe give maybe give him a shot at it. You know? Yeah, but. All right, so I want to I want to wrap it up here with you guys. I want to thank you so much for coming. We have just a couple of quick rapid fire questions we always ask all of our guests. Sure. So, uh, the first mm-hmm. one, we're going to go back to Ninja Turtles. Uh, David, we're going to start with you. Out of the four turtles or anyone in the turtle universe, which one do you kind of most identify with? Oh, identify with. I usually get which one is your favorite, and I always say Michelangelo just because. Um, <laughs> That's why we had to tailor the, the question because everyone's favorite is Michelangelo. Right. Of course. Uh, right. It's, uh, it's also that was my dad's name, so the name oh, means a lot to me. Oh. Uh, yeah, my name is a cheap classical art joke on Michelangelo's David. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh man, that's amazing. I like, I like your I th- dad. I'm going to go read his books. I, you should. Uh, I think as far as I, I, maybe I think Donnie. All right. I think Donatello. That's always Peter's answer too. When, uh, whenever he's asked yeah. about which is, uh, which is his turtle. That's interesting. Uh, and, uh, uh, Taylor, how about you? Which turtle do you think you, you most are represented by? Oh, definitely, Raph. I'm a hothead. Yes. Based on this conversation, I would absolutely agree. I'm keeping it controlled for now. But. You're, well, you're doing a great job. Um, <laughs> Taylor, Jersey strong. Yeah, cheers. Always. Um, Taylor, like, what? We haven't heard a lot from you, so I want to get this question out of here. What yeah, is sure, sure. what is your favorite part about about being on this this creative team? Hmm. There's a lot. I mean, I, I like everyone I'm working with. I've wanted to work with a bunch of them for different times, but and I'm only going to say this because I work with David so often. I got the chance to work with Kevin Eastman. Come on. <laughs> like, sure. <laughs> That's, I, we got to interview him and I was like, oh my God, he said my name. That's like a dream come true. Uh, so I can only imagine getting to like put his words and his ideas on the paper must like freak you out on, on a pretty uh, intense level. The day I got the first page that he drew, like for the flashback, I was like, what the hell is my life? Oops, Kevin, I lost it. Can you draw another one? Meanwhile, it's framed on your wall. Actually, you know, well, funny. It was digital, so. Oh. Funny, funny you should say that. Uh, this is how nice a guy Kevin is. He gave me that page. Aw. He he I have the first. I have the first Kevin Eastman drawing blood page. It's the one where awesome. he's at the convention and meets the Jim Steranko looking Frank Forrest. Uh, and yeah, just package showed up one day. I open it up and he was like, this is for you, man. And uh, super cool. Means a lot to me. Yeah. yeah. I got my signed Kevin Eastman print when I ordered that. My comic shop didn't have drawing blood in the day it came out. So I was like, son of a, so I went to Kevin's website and ordered it. And then like two days later he posts like, Oh, by the way, anything ordered from now onward, I'm going to send this signed print. And I was like, crap, I just missed it. And I opened up my drawing blood and it was in there. I was like, this dude's like, nice. he, doesn't, he doesn't have to do that stuff. What a good guy. Um, okay. Yeah. But the one thing about Kevin Eastman is he's a fan of pineapple pizza. So now the, <laughs> the next question is, Taylor, favorite kind of pizza? Ooh. Uh, I'm going to get a little uh, bougie over here. But, Go for uh, it. Prosciutto, arugula, and balsamic vinegar. That's a Jersey pizza right there. That's a solid pizza. <laughs> that's that's a good, fancy. That's a good pizza. And then, David, your favorite pie. 
Uh, I am so basic Italian American from New Jersey. I like a cheese mother pie myself. <laughs> but uh, but uh, uh, enough time in both Italy and Los Angeles, and now I like uh, fresh basil on it. There you go. Nothing wrong with that. All right. Well, yeah. gentlemen, David Avaloni, Taylor Esposito, we want to thank you guys for hanging out here on Our a, a Back Issues thank with you. us. This has been a pleasure. We learned so much, and we cannot wait to get uh, the next issues of Drawing Blood, maybe see a TV show someday. I'm going to wait for my Ronin action figures, <laughs> all that Ooh. stuff. So, oh, yeah, uh, we're working on it. If you guys ever need a theme song, I'm just saying, I do music, <laughs> give me a call. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, one Great more time for, for David Avalonia and Taylor Esposito. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me.